Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. This episode is going to include horrendous crimes against other humans, so listener discretion is advised. If you would like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you would like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps and will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout out in a future podcast and a thank you message from the host. Also, for no cost, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's get dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Scientists long held the belief that North America was first settled by humans that followed herds of game across the Bering Strait when it was a solid frozen land known as Beringia. DNA studies of prehistoric human remains have now shown that after the initial flow of humans into North America around 22,000 years ago, several migrations of people went back across the frozen lands to return to Asia 15,000 years ago. Around 10,000 years ago, the populations were cut off from each other until 1648 when a Russian explorer took several ships across the Bering Sea and settled a colony on the shores of what would become Alaska. Spain would follow suit at the end of the 1700s as they tried to establish more territory along the western edge of North America. Their settlements led to the cities of Valdez and Cordova. Spain would eventually abandon its conquest of Alaska, and in 1867, America bought the rights to all of Alaska from Russia for $7.2 million, which is $151 million in today's money. This was initially seen as a giant waste of money, but with the discovery of gold, oil, and its strategic defensive placement during World War II and the Cold War, Seward can rest easy knowing he made one of the best purchases in history. Alaska would become the 49th state on January 3, 1959, and is considered a land of resource, beauty, and danger. It's considered the last frontier in America, and many people move to Alaska to to experience a life more free from the noise and busyness of the lower 48 states. Life can be hard, and while some people have sought fortune and struck it rich, others have found themselves scraping to get by after making the move. For many runaways, Alaska is the end of the line and many of them turned to sex work to make ends meet. A combination of drugs, sex work, and remoteness made the wilderness of Alaska a deadly place for many women. And for one man, a baker and a big game hunter, he used this combination to hunt something other than animals. He used the vast wilderness of Alaska to hunt women for 12 years. Now I struggled with what was the best way to tell this story. Most true crime stories can be done based on the suspect's life and then get into his or her crimes. Sometimes it can be told from the chronology of the investigation, but as you'll find out, this story is filled with sporadic investigations and I don't want the suspect to be the main focus of the story. So I decided to focus on a chronological run through of the victims. After covering the victims, we can step back in time and take a closer look at the suspect and the investigation into his life and horrible crimes. Some of these victims will be considered known victims, either linked by evidence and or a confession by the suspect. Others will be considered suspected victims linked by his MO and circumstantial evidence. Patricia or Patty Roberts was one of those girls that had fallen hard while living in Alaska. At 18 years old, she was working the streets to pay for her heroin habit. 
On the evening of December 19, 1971, she was trying to make money when she was picked up by a man. She described him as a 5'9", slender, and young man around 25 years old. When she got into his car, he pointed a handgun at her and said he'd kill her if she didn't do what he wanted. The suspect bound her hands with leather shoelaces and they drove south along the highway towards Seward, Alaska. He kept stopping the car, making her undress so that she couldn't run away in the sub-freezing temperatures, and said he wanted to slash her bra with his knife. He finally stopped the car at a motel in Cooper Landing, 98 miles south of Anchorage and one hour north of Seward. He sexually assaulted her, but she didn't fight back, something that seemed to upset him, and Patty felt he had attacked women before and enjoyed the fight. On the way back to Anchorage, he kept threatening to kill her if she talked, and once he started driving into the wilderness, but she convinced him that she would stay quiet and he could let her live. He did let her live, and soon after she talked to her police handler as she was a confidential informant working off some drug charges. She told him about the kidnapping, and an investigation was launched. Patty sat down and went through mugshots in a book the cops dubbed their a-hole book, and in that book was the man that took her for that almost one-way ride. She pointed to a picture of a man and said, that's him. This was 1971, and 12 years later, that man would become known as the Baker Butcher. Although he had told Patty he had killed before, his first suspected victim was a woman by the name of Celia Beth Van Zanten. Celia was 18 years old when she went missing out of Anchorage on December 12, 1971. She had been living with three of her older brothers and a cousin off Kinnick Avenue. Around 8.30 p.m., she walked to a supermarket near her house that closed at 9 p.m. A witness saw her walking to the supermarket around 8.45, but she never made it to the store before it closed. She was reported missing two days later, and on Christmas Day, 1971, her body was discovered at a nearby state park. She had been bound, sexually assaulted, stabbed in the chest, and then left out in the sub-freezing temperatures to die. Her body was found at the bottom of a ravine, and it was thought she knew she was going to die and tried to make an escape and fell into the ravine. There was evidence she was alive when she landed in the ravine because she had made attempts to climb out, but her bindings prevented her from making much progress, and she died from exposure. The similarities between this murder and the attack on Patty were too strong to believe the same suspect wasn't involved. When caught, the suspect would deny he killed Celia, but there was evidence that suggested that Celia was his first killing. I know we talk about breaks in timelines, and when we discuss what was going on with the suspect in 1972, this break between his attacks on Patty and Celia and his next suspected killing will make more sense. So we go forward to July 7th of 1973. 17-year-old Megan Saiban Emmerich went missing out of Seward, Alaska. She had been doing laundry when she suddenly vanished, leaving all of her belongings behind. Megan was never seen or heard from again. When investigators were looking back at cases possibly linked to the suspect, they found evidence he was in Seward that day, which he admitted to, but he claimed he had nothing to do with her disappearance. However, it would later be learned that he confessed to a fellow inmate that he had in fact abducted Megan and took her to a remote cabin where he killed and buried her. On July 5, 1975, Mary Kathleen Thill went missing from Seward, Alaska. She was 22 years old, married, and had been driven to town by a friend. Her husband was out of town working on the Trans-Alaskan Pipeline. She was spotted a couple of places in town that day and then disappeared and was never heard from again. 
The suspect would again be linked to her disappearance and would again admit to being in sewer that day she went missing but denied involvement. He would later confess to an inmate that he killed Mary and left her body in Resurrection Bay. Evidence later found with the suspect seemed to confirm his involvement. Then we jump forward to July 21, 1980. Remains of a woman were found near Ikutna, a small town outside Anchorage. The remains were nicknamed Ikutna Annie, and to this day the victim remains unidentified. The suspect admitted to investigators that he picked up the woman from downtown Anchorage to perform sex work for him at his house. She came, became concerned when he started driving into the wilderness, and he eventually got his car stuck. When he got out to winch the car out, she took off running. He chased her down and stabbed her in the back, killing her. The suspect would admit to this murder, which is his first admitted murder, but claimed to not know her name. Investigators believe she came to Alaska via California, but have not been able to match her to any missing persons reports. She was around 18 years old, stood about 5 feet tall, and she had light brown to sandy blonde hair. She was found with several pieces of jewelry, including a handmade bracelet with turquoise stones and a copper necklace with shells. It's possible that she had Native American ancestry. Many efforts have been made to identify her over the years, and she's been ruled out as many of the missing persons linked to the suspect. The Charlie Project has done extensive work with 3D modeling of what she most likely looked like at the time of her death, but still no one has been able to identify her. Hopefully the world of forensic genealogy will one day identify Akutna Annie. She is currently buried in Alaska as a Jane Doe. On May 19, 1980, 24-year-old Joanne Messina arranged a date with the suspect where he would pay her cash for sex. After the date, the suspect refused to pay and instead drove Joanne and her dog to a remote location where he shot and killed both her and the dog with a 22 caliber revolver. He dumped their bodies in a gravel pit and tossed the gun in a nearby river. Her body was discovered on July 8, 1980. Roxanne Eastland was 24 years old when she vanished on June 28, 1980. She had been staying at a seedy motel in Anchorage when she apparently agreed to meet with a man at a downtown location. She was never seen or heard from again. The suspect would later admit to killing her, but he couldn't remember where her body was and it was never found. And take a break here. There's a lot of these cases where the suspects are going to report to friends or family that they're going to go meet this guy for a photo shoot and he's going to pay them uh, eventually we'll get into it, but he's paying them more money than they probably would make in like a week uh, of doing what they're doing. So for these women that are desperate for money, this is a pretty easy proposition. Uh, a lot of the times he doesn't even ask for some type of sexual act. It's just that he wants to take photos of them. And this is his way of getting these women alone in order for him to do the stuff that he's eventually going to do. As you listen here, it'll be a lot of the times when the person has enough of a social structure around them to report something, we're going to hear that again and again. On September 6, 1980, 41-year-old nightclub worker Lisa Futrell went missing after her shift at the club. The suspect would later admit to kidnapping her and burying her body in a gravel pit. Her body was found on May 9, 1984. Melai Larson was a 28-year-old exotic dancer who was last seen on July 10th of 1981. 
Her body was discovered on April 24, 1984, buried at a location the suspect had disposed of multiple other bodies at. 24-year-old Andrea Mona Altieri met with the suspect on December 2, 1981. She had agreed to do a nude photo shoot and exotic dances for the man and was never seen again. Property belonging to the victim was found in the suspect's home. The suspect claimed he did meet her, but instead of paying her, he kidnapped her at gunpoint, bound her, and drove her to a bridge. He sexually assaulted her, and when she fought with him, he killed her and threw her body in a weighted duffel bag into the river. Her body was never found. On May 26, 1982, a 23-year-old dancer named Sue Luna met with a suspect for an agreed-upon photo shoot. The man was offering $300, which is roughly $1,000 today, and after she got in his car, he drove her to a remote location, made her strip down, and then told her to run. He hunted her with a rifle and shot her dead. Her body was found on April 24, 1984. 20-year-old Tamara Peterson was last known to be alive on August 7, 1982. She told friends she had been offered money for a photo shoot, and her body was found on April 29, 1984. The suspect admitted to kidnapping and murdering her. In February of 1983, 24-year-old Angela Lynn Fettern was last seen in the area of Anchorage. In May, she was reported missing, and her body was found on May 17, 1984. The suspect would later admit to kidnapping and murdering her. Lynn Renee Frey was a 22-year-old who was last seen sometime in March of 1983, but a report of her as a missing person was severely delayed. Her body was discovered on August 20, 1985, but she was not immediately identified. She was buried as a Jane Doe, but an observant state trooper in 1989 recognized some of the jewelry she was found with and matched it to Delian's missing persons report. The suspect would admit to abducting and killing her. On May 25, 1983, 22-year-old Teresa Watson, an exotic dancer, was reported missing. She told the roommate she was going to meet a man for $300 for a couple hours of fun. The suspect drove her to a remote location where he shot her. The ground was too frozen, so he left her body in a remote location where it was discovered on May 17, 1984. On July 13th, a 19-year-old woman met with the suspect and little was known about their encounter. Her body was found on April 25th, 1984 near Horseshoe Lake and she was given the nickname Horseshoe Harriet. In October of 2021, she was identified through forensic genealogy as Robin Pelkey. On April 25, 1983, 30-year-old Paula Golding met with a suspect for sex work. He kidnapped her and forced her onto his small airplane. He flew her to a remote spot where she tried to escape after he forced her to remove her clothing. He hunted her down and shot her with a rifle, put her clothes back on, and buried her along the river. Her body was discovered on September 2, 1983. On June 13, 1983, 19-year-old Cindy Paulson met the suspect in Anchorage. He had agreed to pay Cindy for sex, but once she got in his car, he pulled a handgun on her and kidnapped her. He took her to his house and sexually assaulted her, tying her to a table in his basement which was adorned with big game trophies. Although the suspect told her his name was Don, the trophies had his real name on them. 
She made note of this and other small details, such as a bullet hole in the floor before the suspect drove her to a small airport where he kept his Piper Cub, a small two-seat airplane. The suspect left her alone in the car while he prepped the plane. Cindy saw her chance to escape, knowing if she got on the airplane, he would eventually kill her. He had shown her trophies with his real name, and she knew the flight was a one-way trip. She ran out of the car and made it onto a nearby road. The suspect gave chase but gave up when a pickup truck driver stopped and picked Cindy up. She was in handcuffs, but the man recognized she was terrified and offered her a lift. Meanwhile, a security guard at the airport had seen the strange incident with the car and recorded the suspect's license plate as he sped out of the airport. Cindy told the driver to take her to the motel she was staying at with her boyfriend. The man tried to convince her to go to the police, but because she was involved in sex work, she didn't want to. The man took her to the motel, and staff there, seeing the handcuffs, thought she might have escaped police custody. It's either that or overheard her story as she told her boyfriend. Either way, they called the police. Now, this story is also told as the driver of the truck called the police, and also told as a story that Cindy had gone to a different motel, and police were directed to that motel by staff at this one. And there's going to be a few times with this case, and I feel like it's probably every case where the details get a little mixed up depending on which article you read. I mean, to the point where sometimes one article would say the suspect served no time for this crime, and other times it would say he served five years. So it's not even sometimes just who made the phone call to the police. Sometimes it's like so completely opposite, and it it's why I really try to find at least a couple sources that verify the information to be the same way, which I also understand is dangerous because that might mean that the one site just took the information off the other site that was already wrong. But when there's times like this, I, it's, it doesn't really matter. What ultimately matters is that the police made contact with Cindy that day, but it's one of those things where it's difficult to read three different articles that all say a different thing. One says the, tr the pickup truck driver called, another said the motel called, and then another one said it was you know the, the, the other motel where the boyfriend was at called. So again, this is where some of the details, especially on some of these cases are a little bit older, uh, can get fuzzy, but I said, we'll do our best just to get through what we believe to be the facts of the case. And ultimately some of them that are a little goofy might not really matter in the end anyway so however they got there when police arrived at the correct motel cindy told them about her entire ordeal it had lasted five hours and she gave full details about the suspect his car the gun he used the airplane and how she left her sneakers in the car as evidence the officer offered her a ride to the hospital for a safe exam to be performed which is standard procedure after a sexual assault while driving to the hospital, they drove past the airfield and Cindy pointed out the plane the suspect had been loading items into when she escaped. The officer pulled over to write down the information and the security guard noticed this and approached the officer and Cindy and relayed what he had witnessed and the license plate for the suspect vehicle. The officer notified his dispatch to run the plates and check with the FAA about the tail number for the plane to see if the registrations matched and then drove Cindy to the hospital. As they arrived at the hospital, 
they were advised that the plane and the car both registered to the same man, a man identified as Robert C. Hansen. Now, there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff to cover in the next part of this episode, and that's mainly Robert Hansen's life and the crimes and the investigation, and there's a lot to dive into with that stuff, so that's why I broke this one up into two parts. This part actually ended up I ended up going through it a lot faster just because I didn't take as many breaks, but I did have some stuff that I wanted to discuss, and that'll probably get us a little bit further into today's episode. So this case is one of the many cases, and I know that sometime I'll, I'll cover the Green River Killer, and that's going to be another uh, another case similar to this one where victimology plays a huge role. And I will say again, just as I said a couple episodes ago, Victimology is not victim blaming. Victimology is the study of the victim to understand details about their crime and potential suspects related to that crime in order to get a better idea of what happened. It's not putting any of the blame on the victim themselves. Yes, there is designators that are assigned to that victimology, such as high risk, low risk, uh, different things like that, that, that make it sound like there's victim blaming but in this case it's 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 more of how the facts are broken down and it doesn't have to do like if you could just remove the human the actual person element out of it what we're trying to do here is just assign an actual victim and in a case like this where you have multiple victims victimology is huge because you can look at the similarities between these victims and then that helps you develop that profile for that suspect the potential for other victims and we're going to see that a few times as we cover things down the road not so much with this case but there are going to be some cases where officers are going to notice uh, investigators are going to notice crimes are occurring against a specific victim type and they're going to warn the public if you're of this victim type please be on alert that you know somebody's out there actively hunting you so again, that's not that has nothing to do with looking at the life decisions that that victim has made and judging them for it. It's looking at what was going on in their life at the moment the crime occurred and using that information to develop further information. So like in this case, we have we are going to talk about a non-sex worker victim tomorrow uh, that we didn't cover in this because it ties in better to talk about it in the next episode, but. In all of these victims, they're either exotic dancers or sex workers. And there's going to be a reason that Robert Hansen targets these women, and it's a reason that they're targeted a lot by serial killers. And we've talked about it before, but it's going to be the fact that they are oftentimes reluctant to report crimes to the police if they survive, if this is a case where... The, the guy picks up the, the sex worker, transports them somewhere, sexually assaults them, doesn't pay, abuses them, tortures them, whatever it may be. If they survive, that the suspect knows there's less likelihood that they're going to go back and report that to the police because what they're doing in the first place is illegal. It's the same reason why 
drug dealers will often commit crimes against other drug dealers. They will try to steal from other drug dealers is because they know that if they're successful, there's less of a chance that drug dealer is going to call up the police and say, hey, this guy ripped me off. I was trying to sell drugs. So they're unfortunately a, an easy target for these, whether they be serial killers or serial rapists that are going after these women because they know that there's less likelihood that the crimes that they commit are going to be reported. And then you've got the fact that a lot of these women and, and cases, men or girls and boys, they're runaways. They don't have a social structure. A lot of them get pulled off of the streets by a pimp that will then turn around and that is kind of their only connection to real society. Uh, although the pimp only sees them as property for the most part. So in reality, that they don't have a true friend or family social structure. And the pimp is less likely to contact the police and say, hey, this woman that I've been making go out in the streets and make me money is missing. So again, the, the entire structure around sex work is about the anonymity of it. And that anonymity is what is so dangerous when they are hunted by a serial killer or serial, serial rapist. So as we look at the victimology here, all of these women are in high risk situations or high risk behavior. And I would just question, and when we all look at high risk or low risk behavior, what they do for a living, what they do to make, make the money, so that they can survive the situation that they're in is they will put themselves into very high risk situations. And I question it this way. If you're a 18, 24, even 44 year old woman, and you're walking through a downtown of a major urban area and some guy pulls up next to you and he's a middle-aged, really creepy looking guy and he offers you a ride, are you getting in that car? And I would guess that 100% of the women are gonna say no. There's no way they're getting in that car. They don't know the guy. They don't know what his intentions are. I mean, every red flag, stranger danger, you don't do this. This is how you end up in a, a Lifetime movie. This is how you end up on a, a true crime documentary. No, I'm not getting in the car with that guy. Everything that's going to tell you not to get in that car with, your guy, with that guy, that's all stuff that's going through these sex workers' heads, but they have to get in the car with the guy because that's how they make the money. And if they don't make the money and they come back to their pimp with no money, they're going to get physically abused. So it's a risk they have to take of potentially getting beat up by this guy or raped by this guy or whatever it may be because they, there, there is no alternative for them. They, this, is, this is what they have to do. And that's where I say they're engaging high-risk behavior. I'm not blaming them for it. It's something they, they have to do in order to survive. But when you look at it from the aspect of, let's remove their, their occupation out of this, there's no way they'd be getting into those vehicles. So this is the behavior that puts them in these situations. And it's the same way with what Robert Hansen learned he could do with these women in Anchorage is they're desperate for money. And this is a time period in Anchorage that I mentioned the one woman's husband was working on the Trans-Alaska pipeline. Oil has been found and 
this is, I want to say right after the oil crisis. So the fact that America can produce oil, this is a big deal. And so there's a lot of money being pumped into the economy up in Alaska through this oil pipeline and through all this, this oil production that's coming out of Alaska. And this is oftentimes single guys or attached guys, but that aren't with their families that are up in this area. So they have a lot of money and not a lot of things to spend it on. So these strip clubs, these downtown areas known for sex work, these are very busy areas at this time in, in history, at this time in, in Alaska. So there's a lot of money to be made. So that's why you're getting a lot of women coming up. They're being recruited out of strip clubs in California and, and the, along the West Coast and brought up to Anchorage to perform at these clubs. And a lot of the times that is leading into other forms of sex work. And it wouldn't be unreasonable for some of these guys to have cash, say in the term of $300 then or $1,000 cash now, to spend on a sex worker to come do a photo shoot or to do a two or three hour date. And they're gonna make, again, the equivalent of $1,000 today for a couple hours worth of work. It's a, it's a deal that's very hard for women to turn down and we haven't gotten into what Robert Hansen looks like at this point, and we—I'll uh, get more into it tomorrow. But I think I the the one woman described her attacker five nine. He's a slender guy. At that time, he was in his mid twenties. Now in the eighties, he's in his mid to late thirties. So, from a, I guess from a danger standpoint, we're not talking about like. A six foot seven, you know, two hundred eighty pound guy. He's kind of a meek and meager guy, and he's offering them cash to do a photo shoot. But that's what he's doing in order to get them isolated, get them away, get them out of the club, get them into his car where he can drive. He's already made up the excuse that they're driving to a location to do a photo shoot, so they're not going to question driving to his house or anything along those lines. So he's able to get them away. And, and once you leave the downtown Anchorage area, it doesn't take very long before you're in no man's land. You're in complete and utter wilderness, remote wilderness. And he's using this to his advantage because once he gets them away from everybody else, there's nobody coming to help them. And this is all just part of his plan. So, and then he's using that as to his advantage because once he's committing his sexual assault acts and his uh, abuse and all that kind of stuff his plan has been to kill them well now he's got this person in a remote location there's nobody else around and he, and and the remoteness of it is also going to hide these bodies there's a reason why as i read through there all their bodies are being found around the same time the months of april and may of I think, 1984 and there, there's a couple reasons for it. One we'll talk about in the next part, but two, this is Alaska, so we gotta wait till spring um, until a lot of bodies are found because of the snowfall and the frozen ground and that kind of stuff. So even before he's identified as this killer and a lot of those bodies are found after he's identified, some of the bodies that are being found 
are being found six months to a year later. And that's just because, again, it could be the remoteness of the location. It can be snow cover covering the bodies, whatever it may be. So this is why he, I hate to use the term excelling, but this is why he's able to get away with these crimes at such a pace and that nobody's linking it back to him is because one, these bodies, a lot of them aren't being found. And the ones that are being found, I think one was found when a a, a bush pilot, one of these you know, remote airline pilots uh, landed his plane on a riverbank. And that's the same thing that Robert Hansen would do. We're gonna find out is he used his plane to transport some of these women. But these rivers have sandbars or rock bars kind of in the middle of these rivers and those are serve as makeshift landing strips for uh, these airplanes and so oftentimes pilots will use that same makeshift landing strip to land their plane and this one pilot landed and he was wanted to check out some new tires on his plane or see how they're holding up or something along those lines and when he gets out to check his tires he finds one of these bodies left behind by by robert hansen so sometimes it's just by chance that the bodies are being discovered but as we're going to find out a whole lot of them are not being discovered just because of how remote it is and then the one thing we haven't touched on yet and we'll touch on it quick here before uh, we end the episode is the other issue we brought it up in the past with with rape this is the 70s the early 80s there was i guess some surprise when i first started researching this that cindy paulson's case was actually taken so seriously by the police because there's a lot of talk about the that time period police just not taking reports from sex workers as when it comes to sexual assaults or these kidnappings unfortunately the police would see this as a hazard of the job and would not oftentimes take the report so the fact that the officers took her report and brought you know we're going to bring her to the hospital for a safe exam which is a sexual abuse forensic exam safe again that was a little bit shocking just because of the time period and the location i just I would have assumed that they would have maybe taken her statement and then just kind of sent her on her way. So I'm glad that they did, and I'm glad that in the process, you know, A, she's believable because she's got all these details. She remembered where the house was. She remembered how to get to the house. And this is all why she, she reacted the way she did is because she had she knew the guy let her know way too many details about him, where he lived, his name, all that kind of stuff, that he was never going to let her go because she was now a threat to him. And so when she approached the police, I guess this worked in her favor in terms of A, she had all the details she needed to know about the killer, but B, the police had to believe, I mean, it's what we've talked about before people who lie they can't make up all these details and if they can they're going to screw them up down the road but cindy's able to recall all this stuff i'm sure they asked her multiple different times different ways and she's answering the questions the same way with the same details they believe her and again that's what's going to propel this investigation eventually identify this guy and then 
Uh, like I said, next episode we're going to look back at a lot of his crimes. Again, failures of the justice system to keep him behind bars that would have likely saved a lot of lives. And in kind of the aftermath of this once this all kind of came to light. So that's it for today. Like I said, it's, I know it's a little shorter of an episode, but it's one of those I just had to break up into two parts so that I could squeeze in everything I could potentially squeeze in and uh, except we'll cover more in the episode tomorrow. So appreciate you guys listening. If you guys have any questions, feel free to reach out to me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. Uh, you can find my Facebook page at True Blue Crime Productions, and please support me on at Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. Appreciate you guys listening. Have a great day. Talk to you later. Goodbye.